Tell me more about it. Well, this week we reviewed a Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina that was Mason's pick. There's some law changes going on in New Jersey that could help revitalize the restaurant industry and it has to do with the changing regulations on wine and liquor sales. We also revisit Oregon, where there's some new news about smoke-tainted grapes that were not going to be purchased by Copper Cane. Well, private industry to the rescue. Uh, we also discuss a little bit about the sommelier scandal that's been going on. So if any of anybody's interested in the master sommelier scandal, stay tuned for that. And at the very end, after the Outro music, stay tuned because we have a little bit of, you know, behind the scenes notes on how Mason and I review our notes and prepare for the show. And we just thought you might enjoy listening to that. And that's that. Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When the kids are wrong, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When it gets a rump, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tan down doors. Welcome to another high-flying episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... Your other host, Mason Joseph. Yes, and today I think we have a... A very well-prepared show with some um, really interesting news articles regarding, you know, wine and the happenings in wine. And we're going to try to apply those to anarchy, which is our other favorite topic. So, yes. Mason, this is your week for wine. What it, what do you got going on today? Well, first, I believe we uh, owe some people some thanks. Hmm. And um, the Friends Against Government. Yep, so yep. The fags. Yep, the um, fag cast. <laughs> yeah. They are uh, uh, car camp it. I, I'm always I can't ever tell if it like and I, I need to see it written out. Okay, yeah, car. Um, it's car camp it like car camping. You know, like when you sleep in your car. Yes, yeah. I, I never really kind of put that. Together. I thought okay. that was good. Yeah. Yeah, and then birdarchy, and <laughs> and then they have a number of other people that join it. I, uh, Mance Raider is on the show sometimes. Um, they, I, I mean, they've got a ton of different people who show up, and mm. um, one day maybe you or I will be on it because one of them lo is local to my area. Uh, yes. Not that that matters in the age of technology, but they've shouted us out a couple of times, and they're pretty cool guys. I interact with them on Twitter a lot, uh, and they're very funny. So if you guys are not following at Car Campit or at Bert Birdarchy, um, go ahead and check them out. And while you're there, if you're not following at Tasting Anarchy, exactly, follow uh, us Twitter. Uh, we're also on. Spotify, thanks to Jacob. Mm -hmm. Google Play, again, thanks to Jacob. Uh, maybe SoundCloud soon? Uh, ho hopefully SoundCloud soon. For some reason, they, they're not accepting it. Sort of like our issues with iTunes. They're, like they're gone. They, yeah, thanks. they're... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, you. We're on there now. Yeah. Uh, we're also, you know, on our normal things, um, Podbean and Stitcher. Mm -hmm. uh, also, there is a YouTube channel, but right now it's the same problem. It's not accepting our our feed, so I'm not sure. Oh. I'm going to try to figure that out. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to figure that one out. Um, so, also look for new uh, art coming soon. Yep. Um, so those who uh, have seen the art, that was something that I made quickly to get past some iTunes problems. And then Jacob is commissioning something that's hopefully going to look very cool to both of us because Jacob hates the current art and <laughs> I enjoy it, but 
I also enjoy it because it made us get on iTunes. So if you are listening on anything um, outside of somehow, you know, like an RSS feed directly from uh, Podbean or something like that, um, rate and review if you can. That'd be great. Um, five stars is obviously wonderful if you think it deserves that. Um, now, obviously, we will not force you to do anything, but uh, helping us get seen more will help us do better in those rankings and things and hopefully have people come a looking to give us wine to try and things like that and uh, things like that. So, And then also, tastinganarchy.com and tastinganarchy at gmail.com if you want to communicate or connect with us. Yep, that's that's pretty much it. And I think that, that we actually don't have a huge amount of competition in the world of wine, at least when it comes to just kind of average Joes who like drinking wine. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't think anybody has mashed it up with anarchist philosophy, <laughs> which seems kind of like a weird combination, but it works. Yeah, and that's the thing is it's really not that weird of a combination because, if you, if, I mean, we, we have several articles that go pretty heavily into this. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even our pre-show conversation, which we don't really don't have much of. Yeah. Like, I started to regret the fact that we were having some of it because some of it was so interesting compared, like, in, to what we normally talk about. Yeah. I was like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, I I recorded all that because I was trying to get the balance. So maybe mm-hmm. if you guys stay to the end of the show, I'll I'll pop in a few of our, I our just our ramblings before the show while we were going over the notes. Yeah, and uh, maybe the maybe we'll use those as some uh, cut-ins and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be good. All right, so let's go ahead and sum up your wine because I've I, we're trying to stick to a schedule. Yeah, so I have uh, gone outside of character and uh, picked up a Malbec. Um, oh. This is Ruta 22 uh, Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina, 2016 variety. Um, so I'm going to read wine.com's notes real quick about it. Um, so deep, or deep, dark red, ruby, ruby red color, intense aromas of ripe blackberry with a hint of vanilla, concentrated yet smooth and uh, soft and smooth with subtle oak on the finish. Now, to me, it just tastes like red wine, but in a really good way. Um, so juicy, got a lot of berry to it. Um, is some tannicness, um, very dark in color. I'm really enjoying it. Now I bought it, um, when I thought it was on sale for like $9 and 20 cents from the Kroger and, uh, part of my tales from the discount as I call it. Um, however, when I was online, it looked like, uh, most places you could get it for ten ninety nine, and they said originally eighteen something. So okay. I often wondered if I'm actually getting a deal doing those. So I mean, you know, three dollars or dollar, not like a dollar twenty off or something. Yeah, so not bad. Um, yeah, like it, it's one of those ones that there's some pepper to it. Um, like I get the berry and the juiciness, and it, like this is the kind of the thing that kills me. I wish I had bought two of them and shipped one to you. Right. You would be pulling out the words that I'm trying to use, but all in all, like it, it's a ten dollar Malbec, and I don't think like you're badly served by it. So I'm gonna take another sip and see if I can get some more descriptors. To okay. It. Well, you know what's interesting is that this past week I also had a Mendoza uh, Malbec, and um, I was not actually super thrilled with it. It was J O P. Uh, I won't get too much into it because I'm going to start doing these midweek reviews and I'm going to review that one. Um, it was not bad, but I don't know if it's, I haven't had enough Malbecs yet. I don't think to know this or whatever. It just didn't seem like there was too much going on. It kind of tasted like blackberry brambles a little bit. So it was like, it had kind of that like pokey sharpness and like a slight fruitiness. But beyond that, it was just not anything in particular. Yeah. So like, I think, so like we're, we're talking about in the pre-show, um, you know, the age of like 
Cabernet Sauvignon flair, mm-hmm. uh, the the varietal itself. So like Pinot Noir doesn't taste like anything. Okay, that's interesting. Well, you remember I was saying the other day, like I, I know there's something there, but I'm not getting it. Um, right. And I hope it's because I'm just falling out of reds. Mm-hmm. So there's the Pinot Noir, and then there's Malbecs. So like Malbecs have more of a flavor. And then um, I can never remember the variety, but that variety we had that was like spicy, like and peppery. Oh, um. I know what you're talking about. It's a, it's like famous Chilean wine. It's uh, yeah. I'll look it up real quick while you're while you're look while yeah. you're talking. And then Cabernet Sauvignon for like the flavors. So like you get Pinot Noir, which doesn't taste like a whole lot to me, but I think it's a lack of refinement in red. And then Malbec's where like I know more is going on, and I get more like more rough hints of it. And then that weird or the peppery variety where it's like pepper the heavy flavor. Mm-hmm. The cabs, which you know, you listen to our episode where yet again I will reference Pina. Um, I think the one that you're that you were thinking of that you like is a Carmenere. Yeah, Carmen Carmenere. So Carmenere like has much more flavor to it to mm-hmm. me, and then Cab, and then like you know, like we, I, I think we'd have to go back in the records at some point and count the number of cabs we did. Right. Oh we yeah, we've done, and that's actually I'm drinking a cab tonight. Yeah. I think it's over 12. Yeah. And, like, you have the Pina, which is, like, the penultimate in our cabs at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And But it wasn't like any of the other ones. Like, you could tell it was a cab, mm-hmm. but it was so different. So then, you know, so I, that's where I, I've got this. Like, again, um, it, it, I'm not saying it's dull. It's just, it, it's red wine. Okay. And it's got a little bit of pepper to it. Um, not heavily tannic. It's 13% alcohol by volume. So it could be 12, could be 14, you know, in that kind of government allowed range um, that we've discussed quite a few times before. Uh-huh. Um, like you said, the, their website, is, so it's imported by the Deutsch family wine and spirits of uh, Stamford, Connecticut. Um, so, but like, it doesn't talk a lot about the like it, it doesn't talk a lot about the wine itself it just talks about like Malbec grapes and Mendoza on the back of the wine bottle I mean it's got a lot of information on there which maybe I'll read later um, but you know it's like pairs well with red meat and pasta with mm-hmm. light sauces which yeah. is, the, is the opposite of what you would pair it with well actually <laughs> so actually because of the pepperiness in this mm-hmm. and it's not a heavy to me but you know it's got some pepper to it um I wouldn't say no with this with red meat. Like, okay. This is a little different than like the cabs where like one of the things with cabs is they have such great flavors a lot of the time mm-hmm. that like I think they would go well with like fruit and salad or salad because of the like if you have a too heavily dressed salad, like it will pull the oil out of the salad, you know, like, right, right. itself and they kind of trade off on each other. Okay. Whereas like red meat and stuff like that and the fattiness, and it may be just because I don't want it to be cleared. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, like I'm eating a steak. This is good. And yeah. Like salad. But like, you know, I, I don't usually put anything on my salad. Like I usually don't dress my salads. Mm. Um, and most of my salads are usually just kale. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's, that's fun. I, I, every time you're eating one of those kale salads and I would walk into the lunchroom, I'd be like, oh, this is so gross. <laughs> but you're just sitting there chomping away, plain kale salad. Yeah, actually, actually, my wife can't stand it either. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it's like, I like green vegetables. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine eating like a raw zucchini. Mm-hmm. But like after a while, like I just don't care for cooked zucchini. Okay. And, like, it's not that I like kale that much better, but like the biological benefits to eating kale. Yeah, that's true. How, it is very my, good for you. It outweighs my caringness. Right. <laughs> like, other than when you're sitting there after you're like, you know, five or six like big kale leaf and you're just like this is a lot of chewing i'm not a cow 
<laughs> right. I need some heat or something. Well, I think, you know, going back to your, your like for kind of that aggressive peppery type mm-hmm. wine, uh, for Christmas, you know, everybody who listened last week will be able to get a nice uh, taste of Nathan again, uh, who's next week. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. He's before this one, I think. I think I've already posted or I've already scheduled it. So, oh, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't thinking of. Um, we're thinking of post dates, not. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. To our recording date. Oh, right. Yeah. No, they'll they'll hear it. They'll hear it. Uh, I, I don't know what the date is, but they'll hear it before this episode. But uh, okay. he he and I went and tried uh, several Texas wines, and there are two that this is my plan, and this will be a Christmas gift for you and me because mm-hmm. we'll be able to talk to Nate and. It'll be a Christmas gift for all of us because I can get very inexpensive two bottles of a Texas Vignette and two mm-hmm. and bottles of uh, temper tempera. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this again because it's a Spanish word. Uh, temp tempera nilio nilo. I don't know if that's correct, but also a grape varietal grown here in Texas. Um, that that Spanish one, the tempra nilo. I think you'll really dig that because it's it has a lot of similarities to the Carmenere. It's it's different. It's not exactly the same. I'd say it's closer to the Cabernet Sauvignon side, but it is it, it has a lot more stuff going on, I think, than a Cab. It, it's and the Carmenere kind of had that same deal where it had a lot less subtle flavors. It was a lot more of these like punches, where it was like, mm-hmm. here's this delicious, like this interesting flavor and this one and this one and this one. And then it's like, it's very clear what's going on. It doesn't, doesn't take a expert to be like, oh yes, and I detect lilacs on the Southern Hill or whatever. <laughs> now, th- none of that stuff. It's just like, here's a bunch of like very clear flavors. And the Vignette, I think you will appreciate a lot because it reminds me a lot of the dry whites that you like. Like, uh, well, I guess a, gris, a Pinot Grige is semi-dry, but Pinot Grige and Riesling, it was in that same area. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was in that area of mm-hmm. of whites. So I think a bottle of each, and if we can kind of get Nate to come on for two episodes, I'll send him two bottles, I'll send you two bottles, and I'll have two bottles myself, and we'll... Uh, I'll kind of try them together. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Oh, and, and um, what I think I'm going to try to do for you is, uh, you know, the muscadine grapes? Uh-huh. They make a wine out of that. Oh, really? That, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so I think uh, I think that's what I'm going to, you know, maybe that'll be our New Year's episode. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, these great wines and then this probably terrible thing because muscadine grapes taste like garbage. Yeah, well, you know, people eat, but people will eat them off the bush. Like I've always thought that was weird, but yeah, but, yeah people eat those and... Um, but you know what? I, wine grapes are not great when you eat them by themselves. So it, it may be that it produces a really delicious wine. Who knows? Oh, that'd be great. Um, so real quick, uh huh. The Tempranillo. Yeah. So it's T E T E M P R A N I L L O. Yeah. So in 2015, that was the third most widely planted wine grape variety worldwide with two. 231,000 hectares. Oh, wow. Under vine, 88% was in Spain. Wow, really? Okay, that's that's pretty crazy. I, I know that that a lot of Spanish wines will use it as part of their blend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the it's a, uh, is it Roja? R-I-O-J-A, or is it Roja? Rioja? That region? Uh, yeah. That region of, of Spain is very famous for this. Uh, and then I guess a lot of Portuguese wines will have it as well, but they call it something different. So um, I actually had a – I also – I've had too much wine this week, but uh, I, I also had a Portuguese variety called uh, Bone and Stone mm-hmm. um, that was really good, and it actually had that as part of the blend. Hmm. 
Yeah, it was it was, yeah. it was a blend of five different varietals. It was very yeah. interesting. Yeah, so it's the main group, main uh, main grape used in that that area you said. Um, it's also referred to it's Spain's noble grape. Mm. Apparently, so, I, I love it. I, I think that I, I was so happy that I discovered it with uh, Nate at the fair because I don't think. Well, I mean, it's possible I had it in a blend, but mm. I don't think I've ever had that to my knowledge by itself. And I was so pleasantly surprised by it. And then, mm. in addition, Nate introduced me to Vignet, which I I knew existed, but I'd never had one. Uh-huh. And was like, oh, this is a this is a great uh, white. I think you mentioned that on the first episode he was on. That's his favorite varietal. Yeah, and and I just never had it. Yeah. So um, to broaden your horizons, so the, what's cool about this this Tempranillo? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's grown in Mexico, New Zealand, California, Washington, Oregon, South Africa. Texas, as we know, Australia, Argentina, Portugal, Uruguay, Turkey, Canada. Wow. Wow. All the way north in Canada. That's crazy. Israel and Arizona. Wow. So if you think about, you could get a pure one Mm -hmm. from every one of those locations. That'd be very interesting. How amazing it would be to taste the differences. Yeah. Yeah, that would be. Roughly the price point you've been buying at. Mm -hmm. So like, I would love to try wine from Uruguay. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be very good. Actually, you know, it'd be really awesome is as you and I become wealthier and cooler, if we could try that in Uruguay. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, like, even more interesting and maybe even more rare would be getting it in Turkey, given mm-hmm. what's going on in Turkey. That's true. Yeah, that's all, that whole thing in Turkey is very weird. Yeah. But, uh, who, you know, who knows? <laughs> well, like, so you remember Duterte? Yeah. Of um, the Philippines, where everybody was like, "He's a monster. And yeah, he's not a good person." Right. Um, but like, people were losing their mind about him, and now you don't hear anything about him. Right. Yeah, he just kind of went away. Yeah, it's kind of like people are just like, "Well, we don't talk about him. He doesn't exist." Right. Kind of mass murderer. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. wasn't he like he had some weird ones where it was like, if you're caught with marijuana, executed. Yeah. Like just insane stuff like that, where well, it's like, whoa. He claims to have murdered drug users yeah that's crazy yeah like it just i mean there's so many problems with that but uh before we go down our tangent tangential holes of uh nonsense land yeah ruta 22 is the malbec i'm drinking tonight um you're drinking a cab which um yeah i'm gonna do a in a little episode of this because this is a pretty good cab uh it's from california and Mm -hmm. it's very um very smooth very yeah. I guess uh, silky. It doesn't. It's not super tannic, but it does have a little bit of tannicness to it. It's it's from uh, Napa, I believe. And Let me know which one it is later. Okay, off the show, maybe I can get a get a bottle of it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll do a, a joint thing. Okay. Or maybe maybe I can get a different year and we can okay. see some differences. Yeah. Like that. So um, to the articles. So one of the things that you and I are very familiar with is how bizarre. The rules about alcohol are in the United States mm-hmm. post the repeal of um, prohibition. Yeah, and how like fragmented and weird. Like some places you don't have to have a distributor for anything. Some places you have to have immediately have a distributor. Some places have like no. Like I mean, they all every place has a liquor license right. sort of right. scheme. But other places, it's you know, it's like a formality, like a check a box formality. Like oh, check the box. Now we've got a liquor license. Uh, however, in New Jersey, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So um, the general rule is like one liquor license per 3,000 residents. So like to give you an idea, um, you know, Jake, you live in Dallas. Yep. Um, so what is that, 7 million in the metro area? Yeah, the Metroplex is 7, 7 million. And then I guess Dallas proper is like 1.5. Right, let's do 
1.5. Do a little math. Do it right. You actually use, you know, a calculator. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing the math right, that would be 500 restaurants that can have a liquor license. Yeah, that's, yeah, and that would never, I mean, there's probably 500 restaurants within 10 minutes of me that serve alcohol. Yeah, I mean, especially in Texas. Yeah. In Virginia Beach, which is the largest city to me, there's 400,000 people. Now, that's 133 restaurants. I can't count how many restaurants I know of. Like, I know I don't know 133 restaurants in Virginia Beach, but I know there are more than 133 restaurants in Virginia Beach. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Probably there's more than 300 at the beach. Well, it's 133. Oh, 133. Okay. Yeah. So, like, how restrictive that is to, like, so one of the things about, like, you know, you and I haven't always been as particular about our food, Mm -hmm. but we have at times been very particular. And we've also been pretty particular about our alcohol and we have a show about alcohol um so can you just imagine like how stifling to innovation that could be well yeah i mean because there's a lot of and so i don't know if you've gotten to this yet have you mentioned what the article is uh no so this is a liquor licenses in new jersey wait no that's the oh wait that's yeah that's the article so liquor, you, liquor licenses in New Jersey cost uh, three hundred fifty thousand k, or yeah, three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it's crippling state the state's dining scene by Nicholas Police and Esther Davowitz from the North Jersey Record. Yeah. So yeah. So this, th- I mean, I was astonished by this article when you sent it to me because mm-hmm. uh, now. Thank you, by the way. What's that? Oh, thank you. Read it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where you got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I was astonished by this, but like I've always thought New Jersey's kind of a shithole, but yeah. um and but it never really occurred I, I knew it was like government issues, but it never really occurred to me too much that the reason and actually I have a, a kind of an anecdote about this. Mm-hmm. Victoria and I went to the Six Flags in New Jersey when we were first dating. I think it was like our third date. Mm-hmm. And um we were looking for a place to eat after Six Flags closed, which and it was like mm, 9.30 or 10, not not super, super late, but pretty late, and there was just no restaurants anywhere. Now, to kind of compare and contrast that to um, Dallas, the Six Flags that's in Dallas, which is the original Six Flags, and, well, it's not in Dallas, it's in Arlington, but close enough, and um, or Arlen, um, and that one, as soon as you leave Six Flags, there's like 50 restaurants, uh-huh. and... Uh, and they're all like Applebee's and you know Ruby Tuesdays that type of thing where you can you can get a drink there. But it never really occurred to me that the reason that it was on that night when we were just looking for somewhere to eat, anywhere to eat, that the only restaurants that were there were like McDonald's and Burger King and stuff like that. And it just never occurred to me that you couldn't get to a sit down restaurant and have a decent meal. And that the reason was what this article talks about, which is the the alcohol restrictions make it so expensive for somebody to open up a restaurant if they want the restaurant to serve alcohol. And I don't think I actually put this in the notes, but uh, this is, this I thought was kind of an important point to it was that 30% or in New Jersey, at least the average profits, 30% of those profits are from alcohol sales. Uh And that would a 30% profit loss would make opening a new restaurant, especially like a high end restaurant, very unappealing, especially if you can go into something else. Yeah, and that's the thing is like restaurant, restaurant touring, restaurant cheering, um, whatever it is when you know, like you open restaurants as a living, mm-hmm. like you don't make money for the first five years, and that's included like having alcohol sales, right? And like you know, like it's telling, and this is you know something that you know you don't always think about. Like if a place doesn't have an Applebee's, like 
like Applebee's is pretty like at least everywhere I've ever been in the states, like outside of like really small places in like say New Hampshire. Yeah, like you can find an Applebee's now. Like I get in New York City, it might be more difficult. You know, someplace that's super dense, and maybe the turnover wouldn't be, you know, the table turning wouldn't be enough to cover the rent. Right. The plate price, but like Applebee's and Chili's, like. I mean, there's a Chili's in the mall. Right. And, like, there's been a Chili's on Virginia Beach Boulevard. In the, yeah, Virginia Beach Boulevard my entire life. Yeah, when they, and then right across the street from that is that Applebee's. Yeah, the Applebee's hasn't always been there. Oh, okay. Yeah, it used to be this really cool, like, local restaurant mm. that we really liked as a, when I was a kid. But, like, I don't remember what happened to it. It just eventually closed and became an Applebee's. Like, yeah. rebuilt. But, like, that's so kind of a bizarre thing where it's, like, this used to be kind of a thing that would happen in Raleigh when I lived there. I wasn't really going to Applebee's, but like, you know, I came from Virginia Beach where like there were 7-Elevens everywhere. Yeah. In Raleigh, there was nothing that was 24 hours. Like everything was like closed by, you know, midnight. Right. Like Taco Bell. And this is like right by the 30,000, you know, strong state school. Mm -hmm. Like it was so surprising to me. And then like, I wonder how much of that's related to like liquor license issues and things like that. Well, yeah. I mean, like in, in Virginia Beach, you and I have encountered this many times, like the famous rock incident, um, where, where you have to rush to get to the grocery store or wherever to buy beer before 11, Mm -hmm. because after 11, they don't sell alcohol anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's sort of the same thing as where like people, you know, as Mises said, humans act, right. And they act, uh, through self-interest or you, or they, at least what they perceive to be their Mm self-interest. And so they will make decisions based on the situation that they are in. And so like you and I, when we were younger college guys or college age guys, uh, would make pretty bad decisions just to go get beer before 11 and you know, all the shenanigans that were around that. But you know what this story reminded me a lot of was the New York City medallion system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you thought about that when you were reading this too. But like when I was reading it, I was like, this is similar to the medallion thing because one of the things that they pointed out was that uh, these liquor licenses are can sell for as much as a million dollars. Now, the average price for one of these liquor licenses is $350, but you can sell them from, from what's that? 350000 Yeah, 350000 So, and I guess you can sell them between, like, if you're closing your restaurant, you can sell your liquor license to the highest bidder if you want, okay. and, and they'll be able to use that. Um, they're not always available because of the 3,000, one per 3,000 resident restriction. Mm-hmm. But a, a lot of the restaurateurs or, or whatever the term is who have decided to start a restaurant, uh, they are making decisions based off of the idea that they'll be able to retire and sell this liquor license for, you know, $350 or or three hundred fifty thousand dollars or more, mm-hmm. and they're and they're making decisions like mortgaging their house or taking out massive loans just to get the liquor license so they can keep the restaurant going. Because the idea is, if they can make some profit now when they are ready to retire, they've got a million bucks in this liquor license, mm-hmm. and and it makes sense that um, that they would do that, that they would act on this way. So there's kind of the article is really interesting and does seem like from the way the article, I guess. Uh, presented the story, it seems like everybody's kind of getting on board with it, uh, except for the people who the people who have the liquor licenses now recognize that there probably needs to be more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, because of the you know they've mortgaged their homes or they've foregone college for their kids or they were planning to 
sell this liquor license when their kids were ready for college or they needed some sort of safety net in case somebody got sick or, you know, all these different things that the that their decisions now have kind of made it so that if they get rid of this, large portions of their lives are ruined mm. as a result. But on the flip side of that is you've got a lot of people who are pointing out that in, you know, urban renewal is not happening because of lack of restaurants. You know, ra- restaurants are a focal point of most areas. I mean, my area that I live in in Dallas is Victory Park. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that it struggled for so long to get off the ground, and it still struggles a little bit, is they had great apartments here, really nice, high-quality apartments with reasonable rent. But when you walk around the area, there's just no restaurants. Yeah, There's nothing, like- yeah, nothing to do unless the game's going on. So people don't want to live here. But now that they've started opening up restaurants, demand for the apartments has gone up. And they're able to start raising prices on, on rent in the area because there's now a, a vibrant scene. And every single one of these restaurants that has, that has shown up serves alcohol. One of them is specifically a mixologist restaurant, or what? Or is that what it's called when you when you make different liquors? Well, when you mix drinks, yeah, I think yeah. It's mixology is kind of the idea. I don't know if that's the you know, more scientific term. Yeah, like, I, th- I think that's like the hipster term where they're like they're like mix a mixologist. So there's like one that's like Billy's Can Can, which is supposed to have like these amazing mixed drinks, and then across the street from that is this new Mexican restaurant that I can't remember what it's called, but when you look through the window, it's just a gigantic bar. Mm-hmm. And that's the focal point of both those restaurants. And then, like, and actually then uh, the other, the Asian restaurant this year has a humongous wine selection. Yeah. It's like the, in the area I live in, there's like no restaurants, but mm-hmm. it's a super established neighborhood. You know, my house is built 37, mm-hmm. so like there's, but there's no restaurants really close by and there's no high end. Like there's one high end restaurant across from Jesse's, mm-hmm. but like that's like Rosolo's and it's like, you know, and, and that's the, so like the, you know, you have the urban renewal problems, but you know, just also the, like the lack of easy jobs. Yeah. Yeah. For like, young, young people, you know, waitressing or waitering or, yeah. bu- or busing or whatever. Those are, those are common jobs for young people or people who are down on their luck or that don't have any other skills. Or your know, second job for, yeah. you know, single mothers to pick up, you know, those sort of things. And like, if you have more people competing in the market, you can also bring in better people. You know, like the, when the market expands Mm -hmm. there, you can have more people competing. So like maybe the woman who's working her second job and is struggling, um, you know, waitressing at like one of the higher end places, right. Possibly go to a lower end place because there's more choice available. So like she could find a, a better happy medium, which is like one of the things that people don't always understand about like, the expanded job opportunities mm-hmm. is the people who want to maybe downshift can downshift a bit instead of having nothing to downshift to are downshifting to McDonald's where they prefer not to work. Right. And downshift to, you know, okay, now I can be the Denny's waitress because the people who are struggling at Denny's can now move into this other restaurant. Right. That's just open. Yeah. And it, like you can get that balance and those sort of things, which is kind of like a weird way <laughs> to well, sell it. Well, it, it makes sense and it also makes sense kind of in the context of of your family because you've your mom has wait, waitressed forever at a very high end restaurant mm-hmm. and your sister waitresses I'm not sure where she waitresses at um, like a mid scale mid scale yeah so like the idea being that both of them make decent money doing what they do and uh-huh. they're very good at what they do I'm sure mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the idea that 
if there was such a restriction of liquor licenses, then they would have that much fewer opportunities because, you know, when I go out to eat, I almost always order a drink. Mm -hmm. And if the place doesn't serve alcohol, it's not that I won't go there, but it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, huh, well, you know, I kind of wanted to drink. Well, the yeah. food better. The food has to be so much better. Yeah, exactly. And and, on, and honestly, like when in in the case of wine, as I've started learning a lot, is that like wine pairing with food is is actually kind of a big deal. And mm-hmm. um, like I was eating this like cookie, this uh, Oreo cream, whatever, whatever that cookies and cream or Oreo cream ice cream what, what's it called cookies and cream well i mean they, they have oreos and cream okay but whatever that whatever it was i was eating that and i had like this cab and i was like ugh, this is an awful combination <laughs> but <laughs> but like so i was like well i'll just hold off on the wine and i'll finish my ice cream and then i'll eat something else you know later on but it was like it was it was at that moment that i kind of went huh wine pairing does matter like you have to have it does kind of have to match or else the food is not very good or the wine is not very good. Well, I mean, that's the thing. We've also, we've known that for a long time of a beer pair. That's true. Yeah, we have. And we have, and I, and you know, there's, you know, a dark beer with like very heavy kind of traditional food is really good. Like a, like a, a porter or a stout with like, yeah. with like meat pie is awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, or like goulash or something like that. But yeah, like a light, you, you know, I you, I guess I could drink one, but like something like uh, the lager from like Brooklyn Brewing or something like that, which mm-hmm. I, that's much more of a beer that I would be like, yeah, it's out, it's outside for barbecue and that kind of stuff. It's a lighter beer. So I wouldn't, I mean, I'm sure I would be okay with drinking it with like goulash, but uh, it, it's just not the same as having like a really nice, you know, double chocolate stout or something like that with, yeah. with it. Yeah. The only time I see the Brooklyn uh, lager being better is something that was really spicy and heavy. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it's so light it just washes off the heat. Whereas like the stout, sometimes the oils in the stout kind of like mixes with that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, this is even worse. Yeah. So, so the um, do you remember what the article said about the I guess proposed legislation that's being moved through? I think you got it in the notes. Yeah. And, like, Part of the problem I had with the article when I was reading it is there's too much fluff. Yeah, there is a lot of fluff in it. So I tried I tried to grab out the key points. So it seems like what's going on now is that there are a couple members of legislature legislature that have proposed um, a different type of licensing. It's not a liquor license. It's more similar to like a concessioner's license, mm-hmm. I guess. Which now, granted, if it was you or me, because we're anarchists, it's you know people do whatever they want. Like we're not going to give a license out, but. The idea well, is we might license you as in like we certify that you have the best quality drinks. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. We, maybe that would be it. Or if, if you were renting, renting space on my land or something like that, maybe I'd be like, yeah, I want you to be licensed by this third party or something like that. Yeah. That's the thing is like, we, we would want you to, there's a possibility that we could have um, not like a punitive license, but like a like a competency license. Yeah, example, right. Yeah. And yeah, and that and probably in in a lot of contract situations that would apply. But this, mm-hmm. so in the current context, though, with the state apparatus, you know, with the, you know putting their boot on our heads or on our throat, um, that the new legislation that's proposed will issue unlimited number of licenses per municipality, uh, and the license will cost between one point five, well, one thousand five hundred dollars or ten and ten thousand dollars. So it'll be in that range. I'm not really sure how they're determining that range. Probably. 
probably the size of the, the location. That could be, yeah. And so the proposed offset for the people who already have spent, you know, a million dollars or three hundred fifty thousand dollars on these older licenses is that they will get a tax credit. Um, not a refundable tax credit, but a tax credit that will basically allow them to deduct that amount of money over the next X number of years to reduce their um, taxable profits. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's their proposal to offset it. The the naysayers or whatever, the people who are against this say, well, the, you know, the state can't really afford that. New Jersey's already bankrupt. And <laughs> for the number of licenses that have been issued, if you're going to be giving this many people tax credits – you're just not going to be able to offset it with new restaurants. Now, the, then the pro people say, well, that's not true. We will be able to offset it with this many because the number of restaurants that will open up now as a result, because so many of these urban areas that are really suburbs of New York City that just don't have a lot of like restaurants, uh, sure. even, I mean, they maybe have some high end restaurants, but they don't even have like, you know, the, the bungalow at the beach. I mean, you know, you and I listen to Kevin Smith shows a lot. Mm-hmm. Tell him Steve Dave and, well, I listen to Tell Him Steve Dave, Dave religiously, but you know you've listened to it before. And they live in these these communities that are sort of suburbs of New York. Um, I guess they are suburbs of New York. So they're beach towns. They have uh, an oceanfront life going on. People from New York City come out and and go there. And if they had a, and I imagine they do have a boardwalk, like we had a boardwalk in Virginia Beach. The amount of restaurants that could exist that are just kind of little hole in the wall bars, like taco bars or something like that, that would, I mean, if we're talking in the, in the, in the, the idea that the state exists and that the state needs to be funded with this, with theft tax money, um, that the amount of people that would then be employed by all these new restaurants opening up, that would p- potentially offset the tax deductions. And this is assuming that people will take the tax deductions, which they, yeah. sh- they should, but you know, not everybody's that intelligent. Well, and not everybody will probably qualify. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff, backdoor stuff. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the things that like superior great Bob Murphy was kind of talking about. And yeah. I'm going to butcher the idea behind, I think, a lot of this stuff. It's very hard to say, like, this is kind of a Keynesian point. And I, and I don't blame you for talking about it because I think the idea makes sense and somewhat. But there's no predictive element because, like, the as we were just talking about, we don't know why specifically people aren't bringing, starting, new, starting new restaurants. Because one of the things that's, you know, as you know, having been in the payroll business, New Jersey has like 60 different taxes. Like if you remember, like, you know, all those taxes, like unemployment taxes and stuff in New Jersey. Yeah. Also, New Jersey is the 11th state to require some sort of sick pay. Mm-hmm. So now New Jersey has mandatory sick pay for every class of worker. Right. So, like, you know, a liquor license is very prohibitive, but it may not be the only thing, you know, like, people are always like, oh, this will pay for itself. Like, the kind of the Trumpian, Trumpian tax credits things, like, mm-hmm. the the increase in profits will pay for itself. And it's like, well, you have no idea. <laughs> like, well, that's true, and they don't. But I, I think that whether it does pay for itself or not, I, I you and I, I think, would both agree on this, that the reduction of regulation is just in general better for the humanity and for New Jersey residents in general. Oh, so yes. So I, I I in no way want to be the guy saying, right. I get it. Yeah. So like my point is purely that like, it's a normative point where people are like, Oh, this will increase, you know, business. No, probably not because there's New Jersey sucks so bad. Otherwise. Yeah, it does. Well, and this is, I guess sort of, you know, Bob Murphy, going back to the superior great Bob Murphy, uh, he 
he does sort of talk about this sometimes is when he'll be like, well, look, this is where the supply siders do get it right. And and I think that the argument I made was kind of a supply sider argument where it's like, yeah, if you remove this prohibition it it and give these credits or whatever, it is going to reduce uh, taxable, I guess, taxable revenue or whatever in this one area. But, you know, there's going to be a, a growth in the industry. And I think, you know, there and there's there's always even though we don't know exactly what's stopping people from making restaurants, if let's say that that your your barrier to entry is five dollars and we and you make and you have uh, and right now it costs six dollars to start a restaurant and we reduce it to five dollars, then you'll be able to enter. Mm-hmm. So there, so in the grand scheme of things, if right now the barrier to entry for uh, a lot of people to starting a restaurant is eleven thousand dollars, if you lower the liquor license to ten thousand dollars, those number of people will be able to start a restaurant or try to start a restaurant. Right, and, and that's 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 the thing. It is a it is not incorrect in the logic of it. Mm-hmm. Well, whether that's the the reality, that's another story. Like, who knows? Right. You know, it could yeah. be it could be that people don't start restaurants because they're worried Chris Christie will show up and eat all their food. But but he pays for it. <laughs> that's true. He does. He's very wealthy. <laughs> but, so, uh, I think that's a I think that's a great descriptor to it. Is it's you know all things being equal, lowering the barriers to entry because like this thing is like New Jersey is a terrible place to do business apparently from just the tax perspective. Right. But there are people who do business in New Jersey. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah. it's always like one of the things, and, and Bob Murphy, again, the superior grape has discussed this before where he's like, sometimes he is surprised by how flexible the free market is. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like, it, this is the, the, the argument that not the argument, but like conversation that you and I had many, 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 many years ago all the time is like why regulation is kind of stupid mm-hmm. is it's like it, i think the best way to describe it is it's like you took a you took like a single like a, a flowing river and you put like a like a piece of wood in the way and did the river stop flowing no it flowed around it and then you put another piece of wood and like the river is always going to try to find a way to go around it and yeah it's going to go through and then when it goes through it's going to go through in such a bizarre way it's like the like what was going on in the last financial crisis mm-hmm. like the craziness that people were pursuing to make profit. It's like when you looked at, when you talk to those people, they're like, yeah, I can't believe people are willing to do this. Right. Like, are not even that willing to do this, but like, I can't believe that the market got to this point for us to make a profit. It's like, yeah, like mortgage backed securities and these derivatives. It's like, no one thought that was real. Like, yeah. Well, but, somebody, you know, it's, uh, Mark Skousen talks about this, like one of his, like one of the, I guess, illustrations that he does for his class is he lights a match and then he passes it around. He says, everybody pass the match around. And eventually somebody has the match and it burns them and they drop, Mm -hmm. they drop it and it goes out. And he says, that's exactly what government regulated markets are like. He says, everybody was able to get a little bit of light from that match, but it got to somebody on the end and they got burned. And that's how regulated markets get go. Is you just you just need to make sure that you're not the one holding the match at the end. Exactly, and that's the the difference between the free market and the unregulated and the yeah. regulated market is the person who gets burned in the free market is the person who made the bad business decision. Mm-hmm. The person who gets burned in the regulated market isn't always the person who made the bad business. Yeah, yeah. A lot oftentimes it's the retirees, people who contribute to their four hundred one k, you know yeah. that type of thing. Uh, let's go ahead and close out this article though, because I thought it had a pretty good quote at the end. Do you want to, you want to go ahead and read that real quick? It's a lot. Of, you, oh, you let I, me. Okay, so I think it'll read it in a better voice. Okay, so the, this quote at the end I thought was really good, uh, and it 
I think it kind of illustrates what a lot of the Northeast is facing right now. And I, I'm, as you know, Mason and, and Victoria, because I complain to her all the time, I am not a fan of the Northeast. And <laughs> sorry to Bird Arcus, I know that you live in, you know, the Bronx or Queens or somewhere like that. Uh, I really, really hate the Northeast. It's one of my least favorite parts of the country. But then again, I haven't been to the good parts of the Northeast where it's like, you know, the country and the people are down to earth. I've just been to the urban areas and it just drives me nuts. So, uh, the, but the quote at the end, and I think this is prescriptive is, uh, we're an older legacy Northeastern state. So we constantly have to redevelop and reinvent ourselves. Uh, and then it says, uh, we can't do that if we're going to be caught in rules that go back to the 1930s. Uh-huh. And that's, that's kind of the truth in the situation. I don't even know if we mentioned it yet. These laws that are, that are kind of prohibiting a lot of people in New Jersey from doing this are from 1947. And it was from when the majority of their legislature was still prohibition era lawmakers. And yeah. Virginia has got a very similar problem is that the, the ABC stores that, that sell liquor in Virginia, those are, I don't think they're quite as old as this, but they're pretty old. They're, I think they're from the 50s or 60s and uh, where the state is the only one that's allowed to sell liquor uh, or alcohol, I think, above 22%. Uh, and I could be wrong on that number. I, it's higher. It's a high percentage because it doesn't cover wine and uh, certain types of spirits, but it does cover yeah. all liquors. Yeah, I think it was... Uh... I think you're right. I think it's uh, over 22 because okay. a dogfish head had a huge problem with it. Yeah. With 120 minutes. Well, and this anecdotally, again, this uh, is one of the reasons why there's no apple wine in Virginia is or or why most of the time it's cider not apple wine is apple wine is taxed at a much higher rate and it's also very restricted on where you can sell apple wine so that's why they usually make a sparkling cider instead which is on the alcohol level a little bit lower than regular wine um usually you know 11 10 or 11 percent and uh, they'll do it with uh, the same types of uh, yeast as in champagne. Mm-hmm. And it's a sparkling cider at that point, but it's not quite alcoholic enough to be a apple wine, which is taxed at a higher rate. And then if you if you ferment the it high enough and make it very, very, very dry, uh, you'll be approaching 20% alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I, I talked to a lady at the in Richmond. There's a, I think it's called, it's either... Blue Bee or Bumblebee, something along those lines. Uh, it's a cidery up there where they're bringing back legacy apples and stuff from pre-prohibition era, and making a lot of really interesting ciders out of it. And she said one of her one of the things she wanted to do at first was to do apple wines. And uh, when they looked into a lot of the regulations in Virginia, they were like, "This is just it's t- it's tax prohibitive. We can't really do it." So they end yeah. up doing cider instead. So real quick, uh-huh. I'm gonna figure out how old. Virginia ABC stores are um, uh, April twenty first, twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from NBC twenty nine, uh, which is a Richmond affiliate or something like that. Maybe uh, today the Virginia Alcohol Beverage Control ABC Authority announced its twentieth consecutive record breaking year. The fiscal year ended. Fiscal year twenty seventeen gross sales topping nine hundred and eighty four point eight million, wow. four hundred thirty six million over the previous year. During the same time frames, retail sales grew four point five percent, and licensee sales sales to restaurants climbed four percent. Wow! Now those were unaudited figures, so okay, probably bullshit, but <laughs> but yeah. So like that's so that's nearly a billion dollars. Yeah, that's that, that is that's uh. 
I mean, that's a billion dollars. And also, I mean, you've been to the ABC store and it's usually staffed by not the greatest people in the world. <laughs> Sometimes they're pretty cool, but a lot of times it's like people who are, so there's this, there's this thing that Victoria was telling me about where like in, uh, in Eastern Europe, when you go to the grocery store, um, people, they, they act like they're inconvenienced by your patronage. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced that a lot with the ABC store people where I go in, I'm like, Hey, do you guys, you know, Victoria is the only one who drinks liquor in our house. So, or higher alcohol beverages. So I'll go in there and be like, Hey, do you guys have that almond day, uh, Bailey's Irish cream? And they'll be like, ah, yes, it's over on aisle three with the other Baileys and just go get it yourself. Yeah. And that, that's the thing is like, I've never had necessarily a bad experience with ABC store people, but I've been in, you know, like five times my life. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, you know me, I don't buy liquor very often. That's true. And we used to go there just to get the Almonde Baileys because Victoria likes it a lot. Now we can get it at Total Wine because in Texas they have different regulations. So I just looked it up real quick and actually the ABCs were established in 1934. Yeah. So that's, they're much older than I thought. For some reason I thought they were from the 50s. Uh, pretty much right at the end of Prohibition. Yep. Yep. So uh, speaking of alcohol sales and you know the production of alcohol in general is kind of to revisit something you and I have talked about and I think Nate and I talked about it briefly last episode mm -hmm. is the the cancellation of the contract uh between Copper Cane and the Rogue Valley wine growers mm -hmm. um so for those of you guys who are just joining us or who don't recall from the previous episode uh there's a there's a very large winemaker out of uh I think it's out of Napa and yeah, yeah, and it's called Copper Cane. They make they make a lot of different wines, but they um, it, it's kind of like we've talked about this before. Like the people who make Barefoot are a conglomerate. They make tons of different wines. So this this company Copper Cane also does that. And they had a contract with a number of wine growers in the Rogue Valley, which is um, in Southern Oregon. And they uh, from the way that it's been presented in the articles, and I'd be interested to know kind of what Copper Cane's side of the story is, although they haven't really addressed it, um, is that they just kind of abruptly came up to Northern uh, or came up to Oregon and was like, yeah, we're not, we're not uh, fulfilling this contract. We're not going to buy grapes from you because there's been some fires in Northern California and Southern Oregon. And we believe that your grapes have smoke taint. And I don't know if I explained smoke taint before, uh, I've explained it a little bit to Mason and just to kind of explain it to the listeners real quick. Say it again. Pretty sure we talked about this on the show. Oh, did we? Okay. Well, just to kind of recap for anybody who's new or who doesn't recall from the last episode. So smoke, smoke taint is a residue that's left on the outside of grapes. Um, and it, and it contains what are called volatile phenols, phenols. Um, and they, I'm not going to read what they are. It's all kind of like a chemistry, scientific-y thing. Um, mm -hmm. But during the fermentation process, these phenols uh, can cause wine to have uh, a number of off flavors, which people describe as uh, pharmaceutical, dirty, ashtray, medicinal, campfire, which actually campfire to me sounds interesting, but, uh, or burnt. Mm -hmm. or burnt. Uh, and this is the worry that, Cop copper cane at least cited was that they think that it's possible that they have the smoke taint on the grapes. So this is, this was uh $4 million worth of grapes for the um, rogue Valley that mm -hmm. they were going to sell the copper cane. Now 
this is pretty devastating to to them, and it, it does seem like the Oregon government, much to Masons and my chagrin, are going to step in and do some sort of uh, sort of bailout on this. Uh, I don't have a lot of the details on that because I just didn't really pay attention. But what I did pay attention to, I think, is in the spirit of anarchy, I guess, or spirit of uh, people solving their own problems, is two uh, fairly large uh, wine growers and and um, vineyard or, or winemakers in Oregon. One which you guys will remember from episode 20, which was Mason's Birthday Wine, uh, King Estate Winery in Oregon. And they're in the Willamette Valley, not in the Rogue Valley. And they joined forces with uh, another vineyard in the Willamette Valley or another winemaker in the Willamette Valley called Willamette Valley Vineyards. And they bought up a large... Not all of the grapes, not the $4 million worth of grapes, but they bought up a large number from the Rogue Valley growers. Um, the, the coalition between King Estates Winery and Willamette Valley Vineyards bought up uh, $323,000 worth of the grapes that um, Copper Cane was contracted to buy uh, from six of the Rogue Valley growers. Um, the maximum amount this was this was the maximum amount of grapes that they could purchase from them and process both their grapes and the um, grapes that uh, they were purchasing. So like this is actually we talked about this. actually, I may not have talked to you about this, Mason. This might have been on a different episode. Did I talk to you about the fantastic year they're having in England? No, okay. I think I did that on like the mini episode when I uh, did a little review, which you guys can look forward to this. I'm going to start trying to do mini episodes on Wednesdays just for mm-hmm. like less than less than 15 minutes of a quick review of one of the wines I had during the week because I usually drink two bottles a week. And um, also a an article that I find interesting that maybe isn't super political, but is just interesting to me in general. Um so they had a really good year in England, but uh, one of the problems with the good uh, with a good year is that you have more grapes than you can process. Well, the the uh, the 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 two wine companies, King Estate Wineries and Willamette Valley Vineyards, have a maximum capacity. Obviously, so what they did is they they figured out what their yield was going to be from the grapes that they normally get. And they went ahead and said, okay, then we'll be able to do this additional amount. And that additional amount was uh, $323,000 worth of grapes. And they're going to do a special, uh, a special, um, like a special edition wine. And the wine is going to be called Oregon Solidarity. It's going to be for 2018 vintage. And it's going to be specifically from the Rogue Valley AVA. Um, which is, for those of you who don't know, the American Viticulture Area, which is established by the the state, the government. Um, so the prices for these wine, oh, yeah, trade, or tobacco trade and trade bureau. That's correct. Yes, yeah. So, um, so the prices for these wines is going to be between eighteen and twenty dollars, and I've got dates of when they plan to release them. And I think Mason, you and I, I think it would be really cool if you and I try these because we've been talking about Oregon a lot lately. I've been in reviewing the episodes. I was like, man, we've been talking mm-hmm. about. I, I don't know if it's there's like a lot of news coming out of Oregon, or because I used to live in in Northern California, I feel kind of like an affinity to Oregon, so I bring it up a lot. But there, uh, well, no, you've, there's been a lot of articles like the. The stuff that you've been reading mm-hmm. just has a heavy Oregon focus. Yeah, I don't. I I'm not sure why. I don't know if that's just it's coincidence or if there's just a lot of stuff going on with Oregon. Um, and it seems like there is a lot of stuff going on in that area. I mean, Oregon is right north of California. California is the like number one wine region in the United States, or contains the number one wine regions in the United States, and so they're very close. Um, but they. Uh, 
so here's here's the three wines that they're going to re, be reducing or re, uh, releasing under the Oregon Solidarity, I guess, brand. Um, so they're going to be doing a rosé of Pinot Noir that will be released on March 1st, 2019. They'll uh-huh. be doing a Chardonnay released on June 1st, 2019. Neither one of those sounds particularly interesting to me. The rosé, I think you and I could try and we would enjoy it and be interested in it. The Chardonnay, uh-huh. I don't know. And... Well, you know, I hate Chardonnay. <laughs> I know, I know you do, and and like I was actually talking to Nate about it last time, last week when he was here. I don't know for sure that I've ever tried a Chardonnay. I'm sure you have. Okay, um, and that and it may be that like I had a Chardonnay, and that's why for so long I used to say I didn't like wine, <laughs> and that was like what was in my mind. But I don't know. I'm interested to try a Chardonnay again. I don't know if it'll be this one, but the third one that they're going to release on August 1st is the one I think you and I need to try to get and share together is uh, mm-hmm. they're doing a Pinot Noir. And you have a kind of a love-hate relationship with Pinot Noir, maybe more <laughs> on the hate side or the indifference side, I guess. That, I think indifference is the better description. Yeah. I, I do really like Pinot Noirs. I think it's my second favorite varietal, um, or it was until I started discovering some of the new ones like mm-hmm. uh, Carmenere and Temp- Temporalino or Temporal. however you say it. Um, but I used to really like, Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir, and then I wouldn't drink anything else. And then it was like, well, then I also like this thing and nothing else. And then I also like this thing and nothing else. And so like <laughs> slow, slowly but surely, it's it's been growing and growing and growing. So like by this time next year, you'll be drinking like every wine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Because yeah. now now it's really hard to go to the, go to the store because it used to be that I would just walk over to the Cabernet Sauvignon section and, may, mm-hmm. and maybe go look at where the Pinot Noirs were. But now it's like other reds and all these other ones like i'm like oh well maybe i want one of these maybe I want, and then i end up leaving with like 300 dollars worth of wine that like i drink over the next week or two which is a lot of wine but <laughs> yeah. yeah but i just i thought that this was a particularly interesting article yeah for a couple of reasons I, I, one is okay good another article to our notes okay about this situation okay uh from biz journal but yeah like this is this is insane it is insane, and it's and it's what's cool about it is that it's kind of been building on all of the different things we've been talking about. So, like, I think the first article we did was that like the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association was all pissy that people were calling their wine some sort of subregion. But well, if you, here, yeah, here's the thing: the Willamette Valley was specifically pissed off about Copper Cane. Oh, was that the original one that they were actually that's, specifically that's, pissed off about them? Well, that's part of it because okay. that was like the secondary like. I think we didn't quite put it together. It was okay. Copper Cane at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I, there's some sort of like noise going on in the background, but I think I'll be, I, I don't think it's picking up on the microphone. It's just, it keeps distracting me. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, so I, that's interesting that it's Copper Cane because the the big complaints that were before was that, and, and maybe it was Copper Cane, I don't recall this, um, that both the Willamette Valley Winemakers Association and that legislator that we talked about two or three episodes ago were angry because there was some California company pretending to be Oregon companies. And it would be interesting if it was this copper cane company that, that they were, Oh, okay. So that's, was it, that's very interesting to me about this is, is I wonder if the, or if the Willamette Valley winemakers association, or at least these two, I don't know if these two are members or not are specifically doing this to give the middle finger to copper cane. Well, so that was kind of the implication in the, like, as I was doing a little bit of reading on it, uh-huh. Um, the Oregonian, the Oregon Live, Willamette Valley wineries, um, like 
one of them basically says that. So, like, uh, the claim against Copper Cane is that, that it labels and packages for some of its organ brands misleading, suggests that they're from particular organ growing regions uh, called American viticulture areas. Uh-huh. Such wines can fetch higher prices than wines which carry the wider organ appellation. But under organ law, a wine needs to contain 95% grapes from a particular AVA to use the name on its label. The Oregonian, the Oregonian say copper cane wine doesn't meet that standard. Uh, okay, that's very interesting. So, yeah. you know, and this is actually, oh, this is so good that this is coming up because this is this is something I wanted to bring up next episode, but let's go ahead and bring it up right now because we still have a little bit of time left uh-huh. And instead of getting into our, like, extra articles. Um, it never really occurred to me until I started listening to uh, another wine podcast, which I don't want to... Actually, I'll mention it. I, I don't mind mentioning it, even though they're statists and they and every single time they talk about it, they go into this. But it's just bear in mind, everybody, that they're basically communists and uh, <laughs> <laughs> like like every like every statist. I'm like, ah, they're basically communists. So there, there's a really there's a, an interesting show that I've been listening to lately called uh, Wine for Normal People, and they brought up something that just never really occurred to me about Appalachians, and the they didn't bring it up this way. This is this is my own conclusion based on the conversation they were having, is they were interviewing the guy who's basically in charge of uh, making sure that everybody in the Champagne region is getting along so that they can that they can sell this this Appalachian together. And he made this point that he said, well, America needs to get on board with regulating their wine regions so that California wine regions that are selling sparkling wines can no longer sell it as being called champagne. Okay. So I went, okay, this is interesting. Um, and I, and I sort of got what he was saying is that there is a long history and a tradition and a lot of work that goes into champagne that may not go into California sparkling wines, but I do not feel like, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, Mason. Um, I don't feel like champagne is being harmed by this, and I don't, or not that they're not being harmed by this. I don't feel like they have a property right in whatever California is doing. So I don't feel like they're the ones being offended by California winemakers selling a sparkling wine called champagne. However, I do believe that the California winemakers who are selling their wine as champagne are perpetrating fraud because they are not selling champagne. They're selling sparkling wine. In this situation, I could see the argument being made from a free market perspective that the California company, Copper Cane, if they are selling a wine that is not the correct amount as a Willamette Valley wine or an Oregon wine or whatever, that it's not the correct percentage, that the argument could be made that it's not the Willamette wine growers who are being offended against. It's the consumers of the wine who are having fraud perpetrated against them. I could see that argument being made. And I, and I want to, I, I want to, this kind of brings up something you and I talked about earlier too, is I really want to get, get more into the weeds of how Appalachians are established. Uh, I know it's a government thing right now, especially in Europe. It is heavily, heavily regulated. And, but it wasn't originally. No, it wasn't. And I think it was, it was originally, it was just winemakers going like, well, this is the tradition that we're from. Well, and also in Europe too, one of the things that this guy was talking about too that, I thought was pretty interesting was um, people in Europe tend to drink wine locally. So Mm -hmm. 
they, they you can get champagne in other parts of France and stuff, but he was saying like, well, the French don't really drink champagne outside of champagne. The English drink wine or drink champagne outside of sh- champagne, and they spread that culture to America, and then mo- America spread that culture everywhere. <laughs> and so he was he said like. And then th- this this really irritated me, and it may be because, like, deep in my heart, I do have this, like, national pride or whatever. But he was like, even the Chinese won't call sparkling wine that is not made in champagne champagne. Bullshit. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of like, yeah, okay, they'll do that until until there's some sort of, like, you know, some sort of deal or something like that that they're making a ton of money on. I, I think that's absolute bullshit. But, uh, but like, according to him, like, right now it's like, America, Russia, and like Paraguay are the only ones who will accept the label champagne on wines that are not from the champagne region. Well, so like, so my my initial response is from like the concept of the normative position, mm-hmm. and I've been trying to I've been trying to make that work mentally for like the normative arguments for like um, homesteading and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So from a homesteading argument, I have specifically gone into the trouble to make something make a name like because this is something that you know you and i i I think this is fruit for a good good conversation maybe not an argument right this is a big conversation and i'm sure walter block or maybe bob murphy or keto holzman you know somebody's probably got something on Mm -hmm. you know you and i are against intellectual property and not exactly against trademark necessarily you know like there's some arguments there but like can you homestead like a process thought concept sort of thing because like you know in the champagne region of france there are specific things that are unique to it just like anywhere in the world you know there's uniqueness to every place in the world that's unique compared to something else it may be point zero 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 one percent unique compared to somewhere else but it's unique Mm -hmm. so I was trying to think of is it is there some sort of uniqueness to trade not trademarking but like homesteading the idea of like this is champagne wine mm-hmm. like specifically because if you'll remember and I think you and I had this conversation like three times in a row I thought champagne was a specific type of grape and like process like that was a specific thing and not from a specific area okay because like you know as you and I have discussed before in the Europe, European Appalachian sense like that kind of denotes something specific right whereas to you and me we're more like oh it's a cabernet right easily yeah and that that actually this conversation on that show and this is the only reason i'll mention the show and i'll put it in the show notes too just because it's it, the show is interesting it, it's called mm-hmm. it's called wine for normal people but it's not for normal people it's really complicated but um <laughs> but one of the things i thought was super interesting about it cause, i mean like you and I know a little bit about wine, I guess, more than the average average person. Mm-hmm. And the things that they were talking about was like it's just flying over my head. But um, when he was talking about champagne, it it also never because I don't drink white wines very often, and I don't drink champagne. I have a bottle of champagne that I've been that I've had up in the cupboard for like five years, and I've just never drank it. And um, the it just never really occurred to me that champagne was not a type of grape. Uh-huh. And until I started listening to this, and he's like, "Well, no, this is a blend of grapes. We change the blend every year depending on um, how we feel the flavors have come out of the different grapes. Uh, if it's a bad year, we don't declare a vintage. We only declare a vintage on good years, uh, and we never use external grapes. We only use 
grapes grown in the Champagne region. This is a very difficult region to grow grapes in because the weather is very unpredictable. We'll sometimes go 10, 15 years without having a good harvest, which is one of the, like one of the reasons that I guess Champagne developed was that the wine growers there had such a hard time predicting climate that they would store a certain amount of it in their cellars to be sold on bad years uh-huh. to kind of make up the losses. And yeah. and they were always trying to get the bubbles out. They were always like, oh, we don't want these bubbles in until like some British people were like, we love the bubbles. We want more bubbles. And uh, and they were like, oh, I guess the British like this. So they started just selling it to, to British. In France, it was it was considered a uh, like a, an anomaly. It wasn't supposed to be there. It was bad. So they were, they were always trying to get rid of it. But when he started talking about this, that he was like, it's a blend of several different types of grapes. Um, I thought that was super interesting. And and that it, it's not always the same. It's not always the same blend either. It's it's usually close to the same blend, but it's... Yeah, see, to, me, to me, that makes it irrelevant in his argument and that we can't call it champagne. Well, I guess his argument is that it's specifically because it's from the Champagne region and that they have, and, and, and I don't think it's irrelevant because I do think that it would be like if you bought Nike shoes and then it turned out that you were not buying shoes of the quality of Nike. It doesn't matter if they're better or worse. It matters that Nike produces shoes at a particular quality. And if somebody else is producing a much better quality shoe and also calling it Nike, you might want to get those shoes. But the problem is that you as the consumer thought you were buying Nikes, which were a particular quality. And that's, you know, that's his kind of deal is he's saying like, look, we agree here at a certain point that this is what's, you know, all of the different, the major houses and all the growers get together. We decide this is what champagne is going to be this year. And we make that, and we do make other wines as well, but champagne, the bubbly, fizzy wine or whatever that we sell here is champagne, and everybody else who's selling it under the champagne name, they're making sparkling wine, which may be just as good or better or worse, but it's not champagne because champagne is from the Champagne region of France. Yeah, but two people who don't consider themselves wine experts, but consider themselves somewhat versed in the wine. Right. A specific grape variety. I bet if you ask most people mm-hmm. what champagne was, they would be hard pressed to give you an answer. It's different yeah. when you're saying you're saying a brand of shoe called Nike, right? And I think I'm buying Nike shoes. If I don't know that champagne isn't a variety, yeah, it is a region, and I'm buying it because I specifically like the type of right type of that's true. And I guess I guess that's where the normative argument would come in is that if somebody yeah. decided to make a class action suit or whatever against this California vineyard is California would have to make the argument that they don't know the difference. And well, and that, that would be, that would be the question that is like, are people, so here, here's a, here's a segue to a, something that we promised to try to look into further for everybody. Mm-hmm. Recently, there was a big scandal amongst the master class of sommeliers from the Master Council in the United States. Basically, they undid the credential of 23 of the 24 people inducted this year. And in normal, in like since the 70s or something like that, only 200 something people have gotten in on this. Yeah. So just kind of, I guess, clarify it. So Mm -hmm. since 1969, when the the court of master sommeliers was assembled, uh, to make it sound very heroic, uh, (laughs) the uh, there's only been 274 people inducted into the 
I guess, status or the level of master sommelier. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly difficult process. There's a, a really good documentary on, on Netflix about it called Somm, S-O-M-M. If you'd like to, if anybody would like to watch that, it's, I recommend it highly. It's super, super interesting. And as soon as I saw it, because you and I have talked about this, I was like, maybe I'll become a sommelier. As soon as I saw that movie, I was like, I have no interest in becoming a sommelier at all because it yeah. is such a large amount of work and it, and it involves, for lack of a better way of describing it, like I'm incredibly impressed by these people, but for a, a lack of a better way to describe it, it involves so much snobbery that I just don't really want to be part of that world. I just want to be part of the world where I get a wine and I taste it and it t- and it's interesting to me and I can kind of get a little bit of information out of it and some history and stuff like that. I don't want the whole like, this was like, they'll smell it and they'll be like, ah, yes, this was grown on the South Hill of the fourth quadrant of Chateau Le Foin in 1963. And uh, that year, they must have had one extra day of rain, be- and there's probably a lightning strike three miles northeast. Like, yes. like all, all that's boring to me. But like, where it's like, oh, this is good. It tastes like this, 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 and this, and I like drinking it. That's interesting. But yeah, just to kind of, just to yeah. kind of like, I guess, emphasize it to everybody. I think Mace, uh, Nate and I talked a little bit about it last week. Twenty-three out of the twenty-four this year, out of a total of two hundred and seventy-four since nineteen sixty-nine is an enormous amount of people to be dethroned. Yeah, yeah. and that, so the, my point is, one, one of the things in the article that I read about this was most of those people were, they have to repeat the taste test. Mm-hmm. And it is unlikely that the majority of them will pass it again. So let me, let me explain this again. Okay. That is, or let me give you an analogy. That is like going to a lawyer and saying, you passed the bar yesterday. Can you pass it today? Right. And they would most likely say no. That's not a lawyer. Mm. That's somebody who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. Right. And, you know, I don't cuss very often on the show. So the concept to me that, oh, I am the winemaker from France and I have the, the I know the champagne. It's us. No. Most people and even the master sommeliers cannot repeat the credential wine is so like it's like that blind taste test where like california destroyed france yeah like in the 70s or 60s or whatever and and then like they've shown time and time again people who claim you know, maybe master sommeliers are different but these people who claim to be super fancy in wine mm. no they can't tell the difference Blind taste tests, they can't ever tell the difference. Right. So to me, it's like, oh, like we put all this work into this thing. You put all this work into a useless name. It's a well, yeah. well it, it's that. It's also um, semi-government regulated mm-hmm. because the the company, or I guess it's not a company, but the council or whatever that regulates the Champagne region is semi-government. It's, it's authorized by the government to make basically decisions backed up by a gun on... Mm-hmm on the growers in the region. Yeah. And and, so, and not only on the behalf of France, but on the behalf of the EU. Yeah. So like, let's say that you and I decide to move to Oregon. We go to a place in Oregon where they don't really normally grow grapes, but it could grow grapes. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. Oregon's got a lot of country that probably resembles France. Mm-hmm. So we then call our place Champagne. Put yeah, a lot of true. time growing it. Well, how can they tell us it's not Champagne? It's from right. the Champagne region of Oregon yeah, yeah. or Virginia. So it would be different if I took all of the 
all the, like, I took a Nike Air Force One Jordan shoe, scanned it in a computer, went to a Chinese factory and said, make me one of these. Right. And it looks the same. And it's got all the Nike badging and everything on that. But it's not from there. Mm-hmm. My my champagne says it's from the Wilmel Amet Valley. Well, if I knew anything about champagne, I know that's not from the champagne. I'm not. It's not from France. So I know it's not French champagne, but it has every right to call itself champagne if it's roughly the same characteristics. Right. Anything that's not, that's for me is the, like, and the only thing I can see about this is the consumer being saying I've been defrauded. If, well, yeah. If I taste it and it doesn't taste like champagne. Well, even if it doesn't, even if it tastes the same, I would say that they've been defrauded because they think that they're buying a French champagne wine. Well, but, that's, but, but that's, that's assuming they yeah. think. Well, champagne. yeah, that is, yeah, exactly. That is assuming that. Yeah, exactly. This says, says it's Oregon champagne. Like yeah. I'm, I'm stipulating specifically. This right. says it's Morgan. So it's a little different. Like, so the copper crane thing, mm-hmm. like, um, so at the end of the article that I was reading um, from just a second ago, or a second ago, mm-hmm. 10 minutes ago, the, the Napa Valley-based winery, Copper Crane, there's allegations of uh, to growing, allusions to growing regions such as the uh, Willamette, Rogue, and here's a really fun one for us to try to pronounce, U-M-P-Q-U-A. Yeah, it's Umqua. Damn you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, know, I know the area because I, I, I know people who live there. Yeah, so Umqua on its Oregon-labeled wines are romance copy, meant to yeah. connote a general sense of place. Now, right. see, that is fraud. Mm-hmm. It says it will work with the TTB to make adjustments if the agent thinks it's necessary. Yeah. So so I, let me let me get back to champagne real quick. Sure. Um, one thing that I think you and I needed to try at some point when we do a sparkling wine, mm-hmm. when I was going through and like reading about champagne and like the qualifications for champagne, it turns out that there is a... Uh, a region of England that you and I are familiar with that grows sparkling wine that is world class. Uh-huh. And if we can get a, it, I think it'll be two or three years out from now, but if we can get a, uh, from the best, according to the article we read last week or the week before, uh, a 2018 uh, vintage Cornwall sparkling wine. That is apparently the best sparkling wine that England and possibly the world has to offer. So I would be very interested to try that, you and me together, especially since we don't know a lot about sparkling wine. Oh, yeah. So I just kind of want to interject that, that there is sparkling wine from outside of the Champagne region that is world-class sparkling wine. And here's the thing, like, there are a bunch of sparkling wines outside of the Champagne Mm -hmm. region. Mm -hmm. Champagne, like the guy said, may not even be the best region that's right especially since it varies year to year and Mm -hmm. and combination to combination and that's the thing is like it varies year to year but that to me just sounds like a made-up scarcity right well it varies year to year but one of the things he said is that they do not declare a vintage except for on great years because all the other years are blended with other years Mm -hmm. which i think that's very interesting as well where like they'll they'll make it and they'll be like eh, not great this year we're going to blend it with another year yeah but see to me that's one of those things where it's like so this is this is going to take us long, but I'm going to try to do it short. Like the idea of planned obsolescence, mm. where like the developer just basically goes, "Yeah, I'm only making this so it'll last three years." Mm-hmm. To me, like I think that's one of the things is like every you know like a lot of winemakers are pressed to put out another year, right? And not call it a blend, like you know just push it out. Like here, you know, you always see it's always got a year on it. And they don't, you know, they don't have this don't declare a vintage thing so i think it's you know noble to aspire so high but i also think it can be stifling and that's something we've talked about in the european market a lot mm-hmm. where like you know who's to say they're even close to correct right you know like 
I'm sure they, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they know what they're doing. They can clearly, you know, they, they make a living doing this. They know what they're doing in some regard, but like this used to be the trash wine of France. Right. It's considered like one of the highest styles of wine and highest readings of wine. Well, outside of France, it is. Yeah, I guess in France they still don't consider it great. Well, I'm sure you know in Spain they may not consider it. Like in in the English-speaking world, champagne denotes a certain level. Right. Well, isn't isn't prosecco the the Spanish version of sparkling wine? You know, I don't. I know it's a sparkling, but I don't know what the difference is. Okay. Like region region regionality wise, I know they taste. Or maybe maybe that's a maybe it's Italian. I, I I know that that like there is a version of sparkling wine that's supposed to be also very fancy and really good. That's not from Champagne. It's I think Prosecco is it's either Italian or Spanish. Prosecco is like a tier below, but that's okay. not from an area. I think it's a, a blend variety. Got oh okay okay that's like specific you know like fifteen ten whatever percentage that. But right. like that's the, the thing that like always kind of frustrates me is like. Who's to say that they, you know, I'm sure they're right, but, you know, what if they're not? And then they're specifically creating shortages. Well, and that's true. And that's also the what if they're not portion of it is there's a lot of times where people who are very learned in, well, I mean, like, let's take the, the last campaign, for example, where, you know, Hillary, who's, you know, very educated and and very versed in politics and all that sort of stuff, but is, you know, a terrible person, is she gives that speech where she's like, I don't know why I'm not 30 points ahead of in the polls or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you don't get it because you're not a consumer. Yeah. And you don't, and like, I, I frame a lot of the election stuff, you know, because we're anarchists, like, it's a popularity contest. It's a consumer contest. Uh-huh. The problem is that it's, instead of it being a consumer contest where, different people have different amounts of money to consume. It's a consumer contest where everybody has a dollar. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, and and also everybody, whether, whether you spend your dollar on candidate A or candidate B, you only get the one that gets the most dollars. So it's like a weird, <laughs> a weird market. It's not, it's not like we're, well, it's like Kickstarter. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So in this case, it's sort of like, it's sort of the same deal. It's like, it's, Maybe champagne's good, maybe champagne's bad, and it may be critically acclaimed. There's tons of cl- critically acclaimed movies that people hate, and there's tons of critically denied movies or like reduced movies that the you know the regular people love. Like they're, they're, like that movie that I watched recently with Victoria. Actually, Victoria didn't like it. I thought it was pretty good. Was uh, the it's called like the house with the clock in the wall or something along those lines. Yeah, it, it's based off a book. I thought the movie was pretty good, and it, it was. Not received well by the public. It was not received by, well by the critics, but mm-hmm. I thought it was good. And when I pay to go see a movie, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It only matters what I think. So if there's a market for me and there's enough, a big enough market for people like me, they'll produce it. And that's kind of the deal with champagne is in the 1700s when they're sitting there trying to get rid of these bubbles in the wine going like, oh, this is, this is a, a bad thing. We shouldn't have these in here. And some English guy comes by and he's like, hey, you got any more of that bubbly wine? I really like it. Then they're like, oh, I recognize an opportunity. We're going to produce this. And then it ends up becoming kind of this snob factor. Mm-hmm. But even if it becomes a snob factor, I can I can sort of still recognize, and this we're gonna have to probably save this conversation for the span of several shows, and after I do some more Appalachian like research and stuff, because I'm still not 100 percent clear on like because it's like semi government and semi not government, but um, I can still see the argument where they're like, well, on a selfish level, we only, we want to be the only ones who can sell champagne because we recognize that there's a market for people who only want champagne. 
mm-hmm. but on the same token, it's sort of like reputation. Yeah, you don't own your reputation. The people who have a opinion of you are the ones that own the reputation. Correct. And so you can't take action against California. But if a consumer who bought California champagne and thought it was champagne from France, they're the ones who could take action. But it would be they'd have to they'd have to prove that that's what they thought. So yeah, and and that's 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 a good point. Um, So real quick, so this will be the last thing, other than some Mm -hmm. quick points. Prosecco is from Italy. Okay, that's very in interesting. A specific region, and and in the notes, I threw in uh, thanks to Wine Poly, Campaign oh, for Prosecco. What's the difference? So okay, cool. Quick. Let's put yeah. that. I'll I'll put that in the show notes so that people can see what we're talking about. Um, yeah, I think that I think that that's really covered all of our stuff. I'll move some of the flex <laughs> items to next week, um, and yeah. we and we can we can talk about that or not, but. You know, for everybody who's been listening to the show regularly, thank you very much. I also really want to give, just kind of reiterate my thanks to the FAGCast, the Friends Against Government, um, because they have promoted the show quite a bit and uh, mm-hmm. sh- shared it on Twitter. Um, yeah. Go and follow them. They also have a really great show. Last week, they talked about a new cryptid that I had never heard of called uh, the Goat Man of uh, Worth Lake, who's... <laughs> Uh, apparently like a half goat, half man with scales who can throw a truck tire 500 yards. And it's apparently a cryptid that people have seen. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, much more about that, but it was very interesting to me. It's my new favorite cryptid. That's that's 1,500 feet. That's terrifying. Yeah, that is terrifying. Exactly. So if there's a goat man running around the lake near my house or, well, 45 minutes away from my house that's that's, that is terrifying (laughs) but yeah they've got this week this month has been very good for them um by the time you guys are listening to this it'll be november but they had a great october month so go back and listen to some of their episodes Mm -hmm. um any other shout outs you want to do um so so not to bring anything down but um you know balls off lars albrick is still in jail yes not lars yeah no you're right it's lars albrick yeah Still in jail, shouldn't be. Um, a, we, somebody we don't shout out often, but who I think is continuing to produce an extremely high quality volume of work, Scott Horton. Yes. Um, yep. He's like, are you going to be able, I, I don't know what your work schedule looks like, uh, but he's going to be talking at an event where Lou and Ron are going to be in Lake Jackson, which I have no idea how far away that is from that, me. It's really far away. <laughs> it's, like, it? yeah, it's like nine hours away. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's gonna be talking about this some some event. Yeah, it looks looked really good. I'd l- I'd love to go to it. If I, I'll look into it. Maybe I can go. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, because like I would really like to somehow get him on the show. <laughs> well, you know, and to try to like circle this back around to shout outs. This is you know I have like this I have a very like family oriented mind just because mm-hmm. I have a very close knit family. Uh, Dave Smith from Part of the Problem is having a child very soon, and probably by the time you guys hear this episode, he'll his child will have been born. And uh, you know, good good for him. He's he's uh, he's he's only yeah he's only a little bit older than us, and I'm really happy for him having a kid and kind of like getting like every time any anytime anybody has like a family working out is very happy to me. Like I, I'm like yeah, all right, you're getting like a good family going on. That's awesome. Because exactly. it's 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 so important to me, and I think that it really just improves everybody else's family. Like you've got a daughter and a and a loving wife, and you know what it's like to have just a family. That it's just awesome to have a, a family. And, yes. Um, and right now, I've got a wife who's very loving and a really cool Shiba Inu, and mm-hmm. and and that's a really great thing. But I'm also 
next month, uh, we'll have, I'll have, well, next month in November, I'll be going for Thanksgiving to my extended family, which as Mason knows is enormous. And, uh, I'll be seeing my five, my four sisters and my six cousins and my other cousin and all of my extended family and in-laws and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to try to get some great content while I'm there, but you know, Dave Smith, congratulations on your new daughter. Uh, I hope that it goes very well and that your wife is uh, not terribly uncomfortable and that yes. <laughs> um, and that she delivers quickly and that you have a awesome new anarchist in the making to join yeah. to join the ranks. Yeah. Just just quick update. It's five hours for me, so it's ten hours total. Okay, all right. But you can fly to Houston and maybe draw. That's true. That's not that wouldn't be bad. Yeah. I'll look well, into it. Yeah. Either way. Uh, we've run longer than we intended. Yep. Um, but I think we would have run three times as long had we not, uh, done some notes ahead of time. Yeah. So tastinganarchy.com, tastinganarchy on Twitter when you want to see Jacob, uh, interacting with fags and other folks and, uh, shouting at Elizabeth Warren yeah. as much as possible. <laughs> they, they, you know, they never respond. It, it's very, it's very <laughs> aggravating. <laughs> and then, um, uh, you want to send us an email, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Um, if you guys have any experience with some exotic varietals that um, may be easier to get or, you know, that you guys have a, a wine that, you know, there, there's more and more of you guys listening. We, we're seeing people who are outside of the U.S. listening. So if you're, uh, you know, from a special place that has a special wine or something like that and you're interested in us getting to try it we'd love to you know try to arrange something with you maybe there's a, a wine pack we can send in your direction that you've always wanted to try from the states uh that sort of thing so you know reach out let us know what's going on yeah and, I, I like uh, i like that idea the the yeah. taste the tasting anarchy wine exchange yeah yeah, that'd be well, good. All right. Well, I think that does it for tonight. Uh, from us at Tasting Anarchy, stay free. All right. Say something real quick. Something real quick. Cool. Okay. Split this. All right, cool. Now we are on separate tracks. Nice. And that should make it quite a bit easier to edit this in the long run. Because I'll be able to either amplify you or take you down, or like I can isolate your background noise separate from my background noise and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think it'll work. I, I, after listening to that uh, episode of... Michael Malice, I uh, went and watched a whole bunch of stuff about different ways to edit this and make the sound a little better. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, it's it's microphone is where it sort of starts, but um, the being able to have it on separate tracks helps. And then also, I I found about out about equalization, which does make our voices sound a little more clear. And like mm-hmm. I went I went back and did like an old episode and just kind of quickly edited it to see what it sounded like. And yeah. it, I mean. I wouldn't say it's like leaps and bounds beyond, but it's better. So, um, so that's that's good. So, you want to go over the notes real quick? Yeah, give me a second. Okay. So, I also when I, when Victoria and I are out in California for Thanksgiving, uh-huh. uh, Jesse is going to do an episode with me. Ooh. Um, about well, I said we're what we'll do because she used to work for the I guess either the federal government or the state government in contra on, in conservation. Uh-huh. And mainly like taking out invasive species from Hawaii. Yeah. 
So I thought we would, I would go over some of like the libertarian solutions for that. Cause there's a couple papers, one by Walter Block about it. <laughs> so I thought maybe I would kind of go over that with her. Cause she's sort of a leftist hippie these days. Yeah. So just, and you know, she won't argue a whole bunch about it. She'll just be like, well, I don't know. And then, <laughs> and that'll be the extent of her, like her questioning me. <laughs> now this, uh, I put the, the actual wine company's uh, link up there and mm-hmm. it's doesn't really say a huge amount on there. The information I took from that first link you gave me from uh wine mag or whatever it's called. And, mm-hmm. and that's just the general information. Whoops. Yeah. It's funny. Cause the, like I've read some other sites. Right? Yeah. It doesn't say anything about milk chocolate. Hmm. <laughs> so it kind of made me laugh. Wait, what? Yeah. What? I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 It sounds interesting to me, although I had a Merlot earlier this week that I was not stoked about. It was okay. And, and so I'm going to... I'm going to... Or I'm sorry, Malbec. I always mix up Malbec and Merlot for some reason. Hmm. Yeah, like in my mind, like they are interchangeable. Yeah, I'm going to switch out the notes from Wine Enthusiast with notes from um, Wine.com. Okay. They're not as in-depth, but they're, I think they're closer to what actually, like the flavor. Okay. Plus, I snagged their notes for the 2016 since. Oh, okay. Yeah. Time. Yeah. This is, we can change it to 2016 up here as well, just so it goes, goes well. All right. Cool. Thank you. Uh, and then if you scroll down to, this is the first article. Is that one that you sent me from the North New Jersey record? Mm-hmm. Um, I just took out some key points on it. Yeah. So if you want to, you can, you can skim those. And then underneath, there's actually several articles that are relevant to the, uh, Oregon solidarity wines that are coming out. And I'm actually very interested in this. And we talked about the smoke taint before, I believe. Mm-hmm. One of the cool things I think that we can point out is that the birthday wine that I got for you yeah. is one of the wineries that has, kind of stepped in and purchased some of the possibly tainted grapes and yeah. is, is making a special like addition wine out of those. And that's the, uh, King Estates winery. I wonder if they got like a really cheap deal on it. And then they're like, we can try to make this like super special. Well, they, they didn't, they, according to the article, they bought it for contract price. They didn't buy all of them. They only bought mm-hmm. what they could process, but they're trying to get the other organ wineries to just step in and just do what they can. Huh. Um, and, and then I read a little bit about smoke taint. I didn't put too much in there, just kind of a just a summary of what it is. Makes sense. Yeah. That'll, these are, I mean, seriously, man. Well done on these notes. No, oh, yeah, this is usually what I do. Most of my notes are like this. This is what I usually write our show notes page off of, or our show notes in the episode off of. Well, no, I'm just saying, like, I'm sure you, I know you've been doing this, but like, they have like compared to when we were doing it in person. Oh, <laughs> yeah, these are a lot better. Well, I, I, yeah. I, I was trying to stay on task with it, and it was always very difficult, and it's also difficult to remember what you read in the article. Yeah, it, it is. Especially when it's on the spot. Yeah, that is. Then I, then I have down here in the bottom, the flex area, uh, I thought if we wanted to, we could mention the Gary Johnson's debate, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and that was a flex thing. And then the Master Sommelier scandal, which I didn't put a huge number of notes in. But, uh, I just, I just kind of summarize what's going on and, um, and it's really what you and I talked about in text. And, and this may be something we'll actually, if we, if we have plenty of time, we'll go ahead and cover this because there is some stuff that I thought was interesting about it. Mm-hmm. And one was that, um, that this could be a good opportunity for somebody else to start doing master sommelier 
stuff if mm-hmm. if the, if people are very unsatisfied with the way that the council or court or whatever handled it. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, not related to this, actually more related to the smoke one, the, uh, the AVA, the American Viticulture Area, mm-hmm. did you know that that is all regulated and handled by like a special government agency? It's not a part of the FDA? No, it's part of, I have to look it up again. It's part of this, uh, alcohol, tobacco, not the ATF, but like a similar group that is only in charge of like regulating growing areas, which I didn't even know this organization existed. And apparently they're the ones in charge of like every, every couple of years when somebody applies that be a official American viticulture, viticulture area, then they get added to it. And there's, they, they have new ones all the time. Like there's one that, uh, I think in 2012 got added in North Texas. Uh-huh called uh Texarkana and uh or no, maybe it's not Texarkana it's Tex something but it's uh a new viticulture area that specializes in this new varietal that I like that I can't pronounce and um it's from Spain which kind of makes sense that there would be Spanish style stuff in Texas cuz I think the climate here although it's a little more wet is similar mm-hmm. um and then there's also apparently and this is stuff I learned when Nate was here because we went to this uh, wine thing at the state fair that apparently Vigniers are really good from Texas. And I'm going to look it up because it's going to bug me until I do. Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau of the United States yeah. Department of Treasury. Department of Treasury? Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought for some reason I thought it was uh, part of the uh, like Department of um, whatever, whoever is in charge of agriculture. Agriculture Department, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, oh yeah, to, uh, temp, T-E-M-P-R-A-N-I-L-L-O, tempra, tempranilo. Uh So that's, this is a new varietal that I really like. And it's similar to, um, it's similar to Cabernet, but it's like a little more aggressive. And also what I learned that Cabernet Sauvignon is, is a relatively new varietal. Uh And it's a combination of Cabernet Franc and um, Sauvignon Blanc. Huh. Yeah, really interesting. I was reading about I was reading about it, and they just mentioned, oh, this is kind of a, actually it's even though we think of it as like the king of reds, it's actually relatively compared to a lot of the grape varietals. I mean, relatively meaning it's from like the 1600s, but <laughs> but uh, it's a it's a relatively new varietal compared to Cabernet Franc, which is like 2,000 years old, or uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which is also like 2000 years old. And and also the, uh, and also Chardonnay is very new. There's like from the 1700s. Somehow that doesn't surprise me on either of those. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I was super surprised by them, but, (laughs) but anyways, all right. You want to get, get the show started? Yes, indeed. All right. Let's see here. So I want to turn you up. I think I can do that by making the hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob. Can you say something real quick? Hello, hello. My name is Mace. Okay. That's pretty close. I'm hoping this sounds good. If it doesn't, oh well. All right. Let's go ahead and do 10 seconds of silence starting now. <laughs> 